Jeremiah chapter 33. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Behold. I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Let's pause. Jeremiah Chapter 32 and chapter 33 is one little unit. And many of the ancient scholars called this little section in the book of Jeremiah the book of consolation. You'll remember beginning in chapter 32 and still here in chapter 33, Jeremiah finds himself in prison. He's in the prison courtyard. He's in, the, in prison for all the right reasons. It's because his leadership has been one of risk taker. The risk, he's going to say what God wants him to say. And what does God want him to say? Judgment is imminent. How is the message received? They throw him in jail. The city is now under siege by the Babylonian armies. You'll remember that... The section in chapter 32 began with Jeremiah's persecution, continues with the word of the Lord instructing Jeremiah to purchase a field from his nephew in his hometown of Anathoth. It became an act of faith and hope in the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, by faith, he believes the promises of God that there is a future for the people. There's going to be a time of restoration for Judah and Jerusalem. So chapter 33 continues the themes of judgment, destruction, and restoration. In the process of purification, the nation will be regathered and will be restored. They'll receive a new heart and a new mind to worship the Lord. We learned that in the last chapter. They'll be given a new and everlasting covenant in verses 40 through 42 of the last chapter in verses 19 through 26 of this chapter. 
The people in this process of restoration will experience joy in singing in verses 10 and 11. Prosperity in verses 6 through 9 and 12 through 14. And then there's this promise of a messianic kingdom. David's son ruling and reigning in verses 15 through 18. So the chapter is a series of guarantees or promises The guarantee of an answered prayer, the guarantee of judgment, the guarantee of restoration, the guarantee of a coming king and a future kingdom. So in verses one through three, the first guarantee answered prayer. Look what it says in verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. The first time was chapter 32, verse 1, verse 6, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 15. But they call it the second word because it's a second message. And now remember, Jeremiah is in prison, again, not for doing what's right, or not for doing what's wrong, but for doing what's right. Now, this is important because sometimes we find ourselves. In different kinds of prisons. We find ourselves in the prison of circumstances. Whether it's health or whether it's whatever is happening in our lives. Um, It may be from something on the outside. It may be something on the inside. But sometimes when we're in a dark place and we're in an isolated place. And when we're in a dependent place. That's when God shows up and he begins to speak. And that's where Jeremiah is. He's in prison. But the word of the Lord comes to him and speaks to him. And in verse two, it says, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. The reference, the Lord who made the earth. The Lord who formed the earth. The Lord who established the earth. And by the way, when you look at verse 2 in the Hebrew where it says the Lord who formed it to establish it, it's the Hebrew word kun. And it's a word that is interesting because in the Hebrew language it means something that's fabricated or formed that usually has more than one purpose. And look what it says. The Lord is his name. You may not see it in your translation, but the Lord is the tetragrammaton. This is the Lord's holy name. It's 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 used in the Hebrew language with the Y.H.W.H. It's the word that the ancient Hebrews would use for the term Jehovah. This is a word that describes his eternal nature. And his mercy. And why is this important? The Lord God is a self-existent God who is eternal. Again, why is this important? Because he doesn't have a beginning and because he doesn't have a middle and because he doesn't have an end. Because he knows the beginning from the end. And because he can make promises about the future, he can keep those promises. And that's why he declares his name. Notice what he doesn't say. Yahweh. A mythological figure, a tribal deity made up so that people could have some sort of way of explaining their circumstances. 
The reason why that's important to you and to me is because, make no mistake about it, there are people, there are people, there are people who believe that all of this stuff is just made up. That it's a myth. That it's a fabrication. That it's not real. And you know, there was a time when I believed that. Until I met Jesus myself. Until on... One March evening, many, many years ago, the true and the living God came into my life and my heart. A resurrected Christ spoke. And so he is eternal, but he is merciful. And why do you suppose those two qualities are important for the people who are reading this book and the word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah? Because the city is under siege. The walls are getting ready to collapse and the people are being ready to be killed and they're being taken captive. And when your life and your circumstances are overwhelming and it doesn't look like you have any way out. And either loudly or quietly you shout, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. It's really important that he's a merciful God, huh? You see, if he's an eternal God and he's a merciful God, then he can make sure that his promises come true and he's able to exercise mercy. And look what it says in verse 3. We sang it during the worship portion of of our service. Call to me. And I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Call to me. If you look back just very briefly to chapter 29 and verse 12. In chapter 29 verse 12, it says, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Isaiah 45, 18, Isaiah 47, 4, Psalm 91, 15. There's repeated, repeated invitations. Speak to me. Call to me. I'm, I'm willing to listen to you. Call to me and I will answer you. When it says, and show you, I will show you, literally, literally in the original language, betsurot. You may not understand what that means, but it means in the ancient Hebrew world, it was, it was a sheepfold. And so it became the place of protection for the flock. And then in Hebrew language, as Centuries turned into thousands of years. It came to mean a fortress. It was the name given to the inaccessible fortress of Basra in chapter 49, verse 22. And so some manuscripts read Betzeroth. Other manuscripts read Netzeroth. There's only one small little dot between the M and the N. If it's Netzeroth, it means hidden. Or protected or kept in reserve. If that's the meaning, I will show you literally great and mighty things. Or I will show you those things that cannot be penetrated. Or those things that were formerly hidden or formerly protected or formerly kept in reserve. In other words, I want you to think about this. 
Jeremiah is in prison. The word of the Lord has come to him. The city is under siege. And if ever someone needed to hear from God, it was Jeremiah and it was at this time. Have you ever been in that situation in your life? Lord, it feels like my life is caving in all around me. I need to hear from you. The Lord gives you the invitation. Call to me. Call to me. And I will answer you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul, writing to Timothy, said, We trust in the living God. We trust in the holiness of his nature. In 1 Timothy 4.10, we trust in the living God. So when he says, call to me and I will answer you, we believe that he's there and he will respond. We trust God in the holiness of his nature. We trust God in the heart of his love. We trust God in the revelation of his son. We trust God in the might of his spirit. We trust God in the suffering of his grace and the sufficiency of his grace. We trust God in the purpose of his will. We trust God in the promise of his word. But you will never, you will never, you will never call to him unless you trust him. But he invites you to. Oh, I have a tough time trusting God. I don't know what to tell you. Because the truth is you will trust something. You will trust yourself. How's that going? You will trust this world. How's that going? You will trust this government. How's that going? There's the invitation to trust him. Because he'll answer your prayer. And look at the guarantee of judgment. Look again at verse four. It says for thus says the Lord. The God of Israel concerning the houses of the city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. I want you to get the picture. The city is surrounded. The armies are there. One of two things is taking place when it says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the houses of the city and the houses of the kings of Judah. One of two things is happening. They pulled them down in order to accommodate the people and the troops are, who are living inside of the fortified city or they have torn down the houses and they've torn down the palaces to use the materials to reinforce the fortifications of the city. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem and those of you who have been with me to Jerusalem, you know that there are rocks everywhere and you know the walls are made of rocks and you know the homes are made of rocks. So it wouldn't have been unusual for them to tear down the homes and tear down the palaces to reinforce the fortifications. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. Their attempt to reinforce the city is to keep the city from collapsing. That makes sense, doesn't it? But there's something that the Lord has said. Their attempts to escape judgment are going to prove useless. They're going to tear down their houses and they're going to tear down their palaces. But it becomes a type and a picture of people using the resources at hand in order to protect themselves from the judgment that God has ordained. Why is this important? Can people save themselves from some things? Yes. 
There are some things you might be able to protect yourself from. But can you protect yourself or save yourself from your sin? No. What if you use all of your resources? Can all of the resources of all of the people on the planet Earth buy your way out of a sinful circumstance? No. Can you use resources to protect yourself from judgment? And the answer is no. And so, people can't save themselves from judgment. But this is exactly what they're trying to do. And the Lord says in verse 5, They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and, and my fury, all for whose wickedness I've hidden my face from this city. Here's the image. You've torn down your palaces. You've torn down your homes in order to build the walls to keep the city from collapsing. But those same places that you're using to house the armies that are fighting against the Babylonian army are soon going to be stacked with the dead bodies of the people who are living inside of the city. Because the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are God's agents in this particular instance. The Lord himself has appointed them as the instruments of God's wrath. The Lord is in complete charge. So I'm going to ask you a question. Even at this point, could God save the people and save the city? The answer is yes. Will the people turn from their sin? Will they change their mind and will they change their heart? Will they fully repent and will they fully trust God? No. And so the Lord says, I have hidden my face from this city. Here's the image. The Lord turns his face away from them because of their wickedness. This, this image is found in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, and Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7. The implication isn't that God doesn't see what's happening. And it's the same God. It isn't like, well, God doesn't see the circumstances of your life or the circumstances of your heart or the circumstances that's going on. But the Lord says, I've turned my face from the wickedness in order to allow the fullness of the judgment to take place. Last week we talked about this, this issue of judgment and this issue of wrath and how people don't like it. They love a God who loves, but they're reluctant to embrace a God who hates wickedness and who hates sin and where wickedness and sin brings judgment. You know, when my young boys growing up would involve themselves in gross and willful disobedience, in the early part of their life, it was met with the wooden spoon. Later in life, it was met with the horse bat. You may not know what a horse bat is, but it's a leather strip that comes to two and, and two, you use it to, 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 to get the horse to go in a particular direction. It looks really bad and it makes an awful sound when you hit. It makes that kind of a noise. And it's this is one of those situations where 
the bark is really way worse than the bite. But for some people, even the mildest and the most modest forms of discipline, they'll refer to it as child abuse. Is discipline child abuse? I don't think so. By the way, there is such a thing as child abuse, and I'm not suggesting you engage in it. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because one out of every three children under the age of five who die, they're killed by their parents. That's shocking and deeply disturbing. When God disciplines... He does so with a benefit that you and I don't always have. Perfect justice. The perfect amount. At exactly the right time. In exactly the right measure. And so here's part of the point. We live in a world where the subject of judgment and the subject of wrath and the subject of God's justice has fallen completely out of favor. But it doesn't make it any less real. God continues to hate sin. And God continues to punish sin. And God continues to embrace justice. The Bible says that God will judge the wicked. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the person of Jesus Christ has become the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. There is love and justice available in the person of Jesus Christ. And so... The guarantee of judgment is followed quickly with the guarantee of restoration and release from captivity. I want you to see how immediately it takes place in verse 6. Behold, I will bring in health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Reveal, literally. Make naked. God shows the poverty-stricken people the place where the true treasures are in abundance. Behold, I will bring in health. You know why this is such an important thing? Because the ravages of disease has taken over. And healing. Why? Because they are sick to the bone. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Here's the idea. Abundance can mean crown or perhaps treasure. But the whole point is that there is this profound absence of peace. And there is this profound presence of deceit. And so when you're living a lie and you're living in a world of sickness, the provision that God makes is peace and truth. And by the way, The Bible says that Jesus is the source of health and he's the source of healing and he's the source of peace and he's the source of truth. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about peace and truth. Peace, the Bible says, finds its origin in heaven. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, it says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Peace isn't just laying down your arms and it isn't just the absence of conflict. Peace is the settled certainty that that which was broken is now made whole and that which is estranged can now come together. And so no wonder Paul writes that God isn't the author of confusion, but of peace and that peace is the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5.22 and peace is. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, 
Peace is the product of the cross. Because the Bible says he is our peace who has broken down every wall. Jesus is our abiding peace and complete peace. Look what it says. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And again, the Bible says grace, mercy, peace, truth. Grace is love planning to bless. Mercy is love planning and then acting. And then peace is love that's enjoyed. And so the Bible speaks of purchased peace. The purchase, the transaction offered by God through the blood of Jesus. And then there's the embodiment of peace. He is our peace who's broken down every wall. Jesus is the abiding peace. He is the complete peace. He is the mechanism where everything broken and everything estranged can be reconciled. And so he says, as he looks into the future, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring health and I'm going to bring healing and I'm going to bring an abundance of peace and truth. In verse 7, I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as the first. Again, the promise of restoration, not only to the people, but to the place. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. If you're one of those guys or gals who underline your your Bible, this is the one you want to underline. How can I be clean? I will cleanse them. How can I make this wickedness go away? I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. By which they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. What does God promise Jeremiah and the people who put their trust? Peace, truth, cleansing. There's actually several things. Count them. Number one. God promises to provide help and healing to those who trust him. Yes, the present generation is reaping the consequences of rebellion and sin and bad teaching and false prophets and greedy leaders in verse 6. God has promised to give the people peace and truth. Another word for peace and truth in this particular instance would be security. Again, the present generation is facing desolation and devastation because of the lies of the false prophets and the people's personal rebellion. The people would live in a society of truth, free from falsehood and deceit. And the next thing, God promises a restored and a reunited Judah and Israel, a combined kingdom. That's been set free from the captivity that they found themselves in. The people are given their freedom. That means liberty. Jerusalem is going to collapse. But a day of liberation and restoration is going to occur in the future in the land of promise. At the end of verse 7, he's going to rebuild the cities. He's going to rebuild the land. He promises to forgive and cleanse the defiled nation from its iniquity and rebellion and disobedience in verse 8. So what can you glean from all of that? What? Peace, truth, cleansing. Doesn't that even sound a little bit appetizing to you? That's part of the restoration. And look what it says in verse nine. Then it shall be to me a name of joy. He's speaking of the city of Jerusalem. 
So when people would say Jerusalem, people would go, boo, boo, judgment, wicked. We, we know that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. So the Lord says, then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. I want you to think about this. What does the restoration bring? In part, a strong testimony to the rest of the world as they're watching what God has done for the nation. Why is this important to you? Because when there's the presence of peace and when there's the presence of joy and when there's the presence of truth in your life and you're going through the process of restoration and people look at your life and they go, what? God forgave you. God cleansed you. God took you back. God's willing to forgive you. God's willing to cleanse you. God's willing to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And people look at you. And they no, I remember, I know you. I remember when you used to do this and I remember you when you used to do that. And I remember when you used to say this and I remember when you used to say that. And now the Lord says the city will serve as an example of God's grace and God's promises to the nations of the earth. And the nations of the earth will be stirred up to worship God. Can you imagine what your life would be like whenever someone looked at you and their immediate response was, God is in the business of forgiving sinners and it makes me want to honor him and glorify him and worship him. When I look at you and I say, man, if God can save somebody like you, I'm no problem. And look what it says in verse 10. Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say, it is desolate without man and without beast in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first says the Lord. Here's the picture. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate. Jeremiah is in prison. Jeremiah is living in a city under siege. Jeremiah is living in a dark place and a deprived place. And in the not too distant future, the walls will be torn. The city will be burned and the people will be dead. And when you see the ash heap of the city, your immediate response is going to be this is over. This is ruined. This is over and it is ruined to the point where it can never come back. But you see, this is what leadership takes place 
When a person sees beyond the immediate circumstance and beyond the immediate judgment and beyond the immediate destruction to the promises that God has made. And the Lord gives Jeremiah a vision of the city. Look where it says the voice of joy and the voice of gladness in verse 11, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. I want you to think about what Jeremiah is hearing. Wedding bells. Jeremiah is in prison. Jeremiah is single. Do you remember Jeremiah was called by God? The Lord spoke to him and said, Jeremiah, I I have a different ministry for you and I have a different life for you and I have a different service for you. You see, Jeremiah, you're going to be one of those guys who never gets married. So in the dark prison cell, he hears wedding bells. He hears the sounds of joy. He hears the sound of people worshiping the Lord. Praise the Lord of hosts. For the Lord is good for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as is in the first, says the Lord. Jeremiah sees into the future of a city restored. And that's what I see in you. Even though your life may not be peaches and cream right now. That's what I see. You see, I don't see the broken marriages. I don't see the hurtful relationships. I don't see the drug abuse and the alcohol abuse. I don't see all of the circumstances that have brought many of you to a place of estrangement from God and all of the difficult circumstances. I see beyond that to a place of restoration for a person who will walk in obedience and submission to God filled with the Holy Spirit. Your life can be different. The city can be different. And the Lord invites Jeremiah to see into the future. Of a city that's destroyed so completely that it is uninhabitable. And then God says. I'm going to bring the city back to life. And you may see a nation. That looks like it's on the brink of destruction. And you may see a community that looks like it's on the brink of destruction. And you may see an economy that looks like it's on the brink of destruction. And you might see a marriage that looks like it's on the brink of destruction. And look what it says in verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts in this place which is desolate without man, without beast. And in all of its cities there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the decimated, burnt out countryside, Jeremiah has a vision of bright green fields and of shepherds tending their flock. In the future, the destroyed towns and villages come back to life. Shepherds have so much room to graze their flocks. In verse 13, look what it says. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. 
understand what's happening? The lands come back. Commerce has come back. Business has come back. A thriving economy has come back. Because in those days, remember Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, how the good shepherd who's tending his flock, if he has a hundred sheep and he counts the ninety-nine as they're going under his watchful hand, he leaves the ninety-nine in order to, to discover the one. And so Jeremiah sees a vision, a vision of shepherds tending their flocks, taking care of business. The picture and the promise become a type of God's people being delivered from this world. Remember, I talk often about your three great enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, In this world, we have the presence of sin. We have the bondage of sin. We have death and condemnation. We live in a world where people die. We live in a world where bad things happen. We live in a world where human philosophy and human government and human science and technology may make life easier or more comfortable, but it can't deal with the most fundamental problems that people face. The problem of guilt. And the problem of sin. And so thinking carefully and living carefully and technologically astute may make your life easier and more comfortable, but it can't make your heart whole. And so human philosophy may try to make guilt an illusion and God a mythical construct. God is real. And the Bible is real. And sin is a terrible problem. But you live in a world... When you turn on the radio and you turn on the television and you open a book, there's going to be repeated subliminal messages. God's not real. He's a mythological figure. Religion is an opiate for the masses. You Christians are mindless idiots going from one hopeful wish to the next hopeful wish. But who's the person who's really lost and who's the person who's really blind? The person who denies the promises of God and the future that God paints? Only God can free us from sin and guilt. There's only one person who can do it. It's the Lord Jesus. He alone provides the truth that we need in order to combat the lies, the peace and the freedom from guilt and sin and death. And because of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he's the only one is able to forgive sin and present us before the throne of God faultless. And once we are acceptable to God through Christ, God, by his Holy Spirit, floods our life with joy and peace and spiritual prosperity the Lord promises peace to those who trust him peace Jesus said I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world give I let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid you believe in God believe in me and in John 16 these things I've spoken to you that you might have peace in the world you're going to have tribulation But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So there is the guarantee of answered prayer. 
There's the guarantee of a future restoration. And then there's the guarantee of a coming king. Look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now look at this. Behold, the days are coming. In those days, verse 15, in the next verse, in those days, what are those days? What are the days that he's talking about? When are these days that God's going to make all this stuff happen? In a very real sense, the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus initiated those days. But it isn't the full and the final consummation of the days. Behold, the days are coming in those days. What day is that? It's the last days of human history. This is when the clock finally comes to the very top of the midnight hour. This is the time in human history that God promises An ideal king. And God promises the king, the ideal king, will grow up to David. Look what he says. A branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. It's Yahweh, Sid Canoe, the Lord our righteousness. It's a reference, I think, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is that branch. He is our righteousness. What does this mean? Righteousness is that attribute that allows us, that allows a person to be accepted by God. I want you to begin there. What does the word righteousness mean? Righteousness is the quality or the attribute that allows you to be right with God. Now, by the way, if being right with God has any meaning and any importance to you, then you should pay close attention. When Jesus came to the earth, he walked in perfect, sinless obedience to the Father. And by living a sinless life, he secured perfect righteousness. Jesus did what Adam and Eve failed to do in every single human being who has ever lived. When we place our trust in Jesus, God credits the righteousness of Christ to our account. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think of a banking image just for a moment. Since most of you at some time in your life has had a checking account. Imagine sin is the withdrawal of all of the assets that you have. And you have not just a zero balance. But now you owe a dollar. And now you owe a thousand dollars. And now you owe ten thousand dollars. And now you owe a million dollars. And maybe you're like the Hunt brothers. Who for reasons that I don't quite understand. Were able to go four billion dollars into debt. Now you're $4 billion into debt. Not only do you not have nothing, now you have billions of dollars of debt. Now I want you to just think this through. 
Let's just say for purposes of discussion that you could earn a million dollars in a lifetime. So if you live one lifetime and you earn a million dollars and you live a hundred lifetimes and you, you earn a hundred million dollars, if you live a thousand lifetimes and you earn a billion dollars and you're, so let's say somehow you were able to live 4,000 lifetimes and make $4 billion and get to zero. What Jesus does is he forgives the $4 billion debt and then he gives you access to his personal checking account. And what is in his account? Everything. Unlimited resources that you draw on. And then Jesus issues you a check. He marks on the check eternal life and he hands it to you now there are two kinds of people in the world who have handed you a check those that could actually make good on the check and those that couldn't make good on the check do you have any problem cashing a check when you know that the assets are there has anyone ever given you a check and you knew that the assets weren't there did you laugh at them did you tear up the check Did you hold it in the hopes that one day it might be honored? But that's what Jesus does. He issues you the check, call to me, and he invites you to cash it. When Jesus came to the earth, he became the righteousness. That's the only way that we could ever become acceptable to God was through his sacrifice and through his righteousness. And that's the rub. Because so many people want to be acceptable to God any other way. Okay, I'll go to church every day. That won't make you acceptable to God. I'll read the Bible. That won't make you acceptable to God. I'll memorize the Bible. That won't make you acceptable to God. I'll become a pastor. That won't make you acceptable to God. I'll become a missionary in Africa. That won't make you acceptable to God. What will make you acceptable to God? In Acts chapter 13, verse 39, we read, And by him, all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The writer of the New Testament says, It's by Jesus. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, which means partiers, extortioners, people who cheat people, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, Paul writes. That's who you used to be, but that's not who you are. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says, but of him, that's Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption 
By the way, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, where it says, but of him, Jesus, you become the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God and the sanctification of God and the redemption of God. And the very next verse says that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Do you know what book in the Bible Paul is quoting? It's the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah chapter 29. Does Paul understand about this book? Yeah. The coming king. Excuse me, it's Jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24. The coming king will fulfill the promises of his people in verse 14. The coming king will be the righteous branch in David's line. He's going to be a descendant of David, but he's going to be a different kind of king. In contrast to the weak and sinful and compromised and frail leaders that succeeded David, instead of the people that Jeremiah in prison, he's gone through four kings. Frail, weak. Compromised, wicked, evil. And God gives Jeremiah a picture of a king who will be righteous. In those days, it says in verse 16, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Why is Jerusalem called the Lord, our righteousness? That's the name of Jesus, and that's the name of the Lord God in heaven. So why is the city called the Lord our righteousness? Because the city is the capital city in Messiah's kingdom. Jerusalem is the seat of his government, and the capital will reflect the glory of God and the righteousness of God. And righteousness will flow from the city. When we were in in Israel, I was talking to the bus driver, and I said, if I was elected president of the United States... The very first thing that I would do is I would declare that Jerusalem is the undivided city of, Jeru- uh, of, of, of Israel forever. And he goes, I'm going to vote for you. That's what this coming king will do. Jerusalem will be the undivided city of the Messiah. It will be the seat of his government that reflects his glory and righteousness. And that's why the city can go by that name. For thus says the Lord. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's a promise that was given by God to David. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. How is it possible for that promise to come true? The people in the north are gone. The people in the south are taken into captivity. There is no Judah. There is no Jerusalem. It's gone. And when they came back, did descendants of David sit on the throne? Were the Maccabean rulers... From the direct line of David. How can this promise come true? Well, it came true in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the true king. 
The very fact that they didn't crown him and the very fact that they didn't give him his father's throne, but rather they pressed upon his head a crown of thorns. And instead of a throne, they gave him a cross and they killed him. God's promise still must come to pass. And he comes back to life and he goes, excuse me, but I'm now back to life and I will sit on my father's throne and I will occupy the throne that my father has established for me. The king, the coming king, will fulfill God's covenant with David, the promise of an eternal dynasty. So how are we to think about this? How can you, in your wildest imagination, believe that the Bible is true unless you believe that the promises will come true? And this is the most surprising, or at least one of the most surprising promises of all. But if he can keep this promise, do you think him keeping a promise to you is going to be that difficult? Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Now think about this. The coming ideal king fulfills the covenant of God. But he is also a king who is a priest. How is that possible? How can you be a direct descendant of David, who's the son of Jesse, who's the son of Judah, and all of the priests must be descendants of the Levites? And the writer of Hebrews tells us, because Jesus is a priest forever. In previous generations, a priest stood before God and represented the people to God. And so this covenant is a promise of a priest who will stand eternally before God on behalf of the people. And so this is why the writer of Hebrews likens Jesus to Melchizedek. There's a difference between atonement and priesthood, by the way. Atonement is a thing of death. Priesthood is a thing of life. Atonement is once for all. Priesthood is continuous. Atonement is accomplished on the earth. The priesthood is carried into heaven. Atonement is for the sinner. Priesthood is for the saint. Jesus is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek and type without father or mother. Now, remember, the Levites were the sons of Aaron. And so the priest office was linked to genealogy. But Jesus is a priest forever because the priesthood of Jesus begins with Jesus. And it ends with Jesus. Only an eternal being can become an eternal priest. And so he's a king and a priest. So he's the ideal king and the permanent priest. And look at verse 19. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus is the Lord. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, pause. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Here's what he's saying. If I break my promise... Reality ceases to exist. Here's what he's saying. If you can break my covenant with the day, 
and my covenant with the night. The covenant with the day and the covenant in the night takes place in Genesis when he makes the covenant with Noah. Here's what he's basically saying. When the sun comes up in the morning, you know what should be the first thought in your brain? God keeps his promises. When the sun goes down at night, God keeps his promises. When you look at the sun, how be it you need to do it with filters, God keeps his promises. When you look at the moon, God keeps his promises. Here's the invitation. Look up at the stars in the sky. What do you see? I see a God keeping his promises. That's the point. Then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of the descendants to be rulers of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and have mercy on them. Here's what he's saying. The moment you wake up and there's no more moon and there's no more sun and there's no more stars. That's the day that you can go, hey, God's not going to keep his promise. And look how he ends it. For I will cause their captives to return. I will have mercy on them. Here's the idea. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord will vindicate himself and his people. That word, for I will cause their captives to return, and that other expression, and I will have mercy on them, that expression, and I will have mercy on them, is one Hebrew word. Racham. It was a word that was used to describe the tenderest family affection. It was used to describe the emotion that fills a father's heart and a mother's heart when they look at their children. You're looking for reasons not to punish them, but you're looking for reasons to save them. You're looking for reasons to help them. In every generation, there have been people who have doubted God's promises. It began in the garden. God won't keep his word. You won't surely die. And in every generation since, there has always been someone who will step up to the plate and they'll say, the Bible's not true. The promises of God are not true. The gospel is not true. The covenant is not true. And they will mock God and they will deny God and they will scorn God. The Lord's singular message. When I make a promise, I will cause it to happen. We're going to have communion in just a moment. And I'm going to have the worship team come up. But while they're coming up, I, I just want to remind you. The coming king. He's ideal. He's a descendant of David. He's the embodiment of righteousness. He is a king forever and he is a priest forever. By the way, it's interesting that Melchizedek did three things when he met with Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. You'll remember he brought forth bread and wine to him. This is before the Passover and this is certainly before the Last Supper. Bread is the substance that brings nourishment and strength and wine was the symbol of joy. 
And so Melchizedek brings Abraham a source of nourishment and a source of joy. He is a priest that ministers his own word and joy. No wonder Jesus says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. No wonder Jesus is the source of joy. So he brings them bread and he brings them wine and then he blesses them. And we're blessed by our high priest. We read that when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he led his followers to Bethany. And with uplifted hands, it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 15, that he blessed them. And by the way, that's where Luke leaves Jesus. His hands raised in Luke's gospel. You know what? He never puts his hands down. And the final thing. He received from Abraham a tenth of what he had taken. Our high priest waits for our gifts and offerings. And there are four things that you can give him. Our bodies, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Our service, Philippians 2, 17. Our money, Philippians 4, 18. Our praise, Hebrews 13, 15. And now, it all comes together. I love it when a sermon comes together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you'll prepare our hearts. Lord, I pray that each man and each woman here would do exactly as the text asks. Call to me, and I'll answer you. Heavenly Father, I pray that each person here would accept the invitation to call to you, to speak to you, to provide peace, truth, cleansing, righteousness. Lord, you are our ideal king. And Lord, you are our permanent priest. And Lord, you can do all things. You can nourish our bodies and our souls and give us joy. Prepare our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would point to those things that are dishonoring and displeasing to you. Lord, we pray that we could confess them and receive forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.